Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think the most important question is, what should I do to live a more fulfilling life? And in the last chapter, I deal with happiness research, how to lead a purposeful, meaningful life. And we know something about this now. There's been quite a bit of research in the last quarter century in what's called positive psychology. And, uh, you know, having a purposeful work, a meaningful, purposeful work, a reason to get up in the morning, get out, do something productive, having family and friends and loved ones, people that care about you, people that you care about, you know, these, uh, this leads to a more fulfilling life. Uh, having some kind of um, spirituality, it, it doesn't have to be religion, but it can be. But, you know, it could be meditation, it could be dance, it could be art, music, literature, um, long walks on the beach, long hikes, you know, any, anything that kind of gets you out of your little space into the, into the bigger world in, in a way that's contemplative. And then also non-egocentric activities, you know, volunteering, helping or uh, volunteering for nonprofits, uh, you know, things like that. Um, just doing stuff that's not just about you. Those are the kinds of things, you know, long-term planning. Uh, that is, say, uh, you know, balance your daily life of just fun, pleasurable things with things that are not necessarily pleasurable, but, but bring meaning. Uh, that is, are more long-term, like caretaking for a parent or a loved one. You know, that's not fun. I've done it twice for two of my four parents, I had step-parents. Uh, you know, it wasn't fun, wasn't pleasurable, uh, it was, uh, you know, tiring and uncomfortable and, you know, and so on, but I felt better about it uh, myself for doing it. And, uh, you know, those are the sorts of things we know that, again, regardless of whether there's an afterlife or not, no one knows for sure, probably not, but if there is, okay, we can all be pleasantly surprised, but it doesn't matter, you know, because we don't live in the afterlife, we live in this life. To be mortal is a most basic human experience, and yet man has never been able to accept it, grasp it, and behaves accordingly. Man doesn't know how to be mortal. The haunting words of Czech-born French writer Milan Kundra from his 1990 book Immortality. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Why do most of us believe that death is not final? And what has the world of science got to say about beyond death? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with American writer, journalist and the publisher of Skeptic.com, Dr. Michael Shermer, whose latest book, Heavens on Earth, has just been published by Little Brown, where Michael argues, longings make us all subject to a number of cognitive biases, most notably the confirmation bias, in which we look for and find confirming evidence and ignore disconfirming evidence. Michael goes on to write, once you get to the Christian heaven, what's it like? Since no one has ever gone and come back with irrefutable evidence, believers must once again be content with biblical or theological narratives sprung entirely from the imagination of the narrators. So what is heaven? Where is it? And how do we find meaning if there is no afterlife? Hi, it's Michael Shermer here. I'm from uh, Southern California. I'm the publisher of Skeptic Magazine. I'm a monthly columnist for Scientific American and I'm a presidential fellow at Chapman University where I teach critical thinking and, and uh, honors courses. And um, when I'm not doing my day job, I write books. So my latest book is uh, Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia. And my previous book was The Moral Arc, 
uh, about moral progress over the centuries. And uh, probably my most famous book is Why People Believe Weird Things. And there's a lot of weird things out there. So that's it. What an enjoyable read, Michael. Um, uh, I have to say, heavens on earth. Um, you present so many interesting moral questions to the reader, as well as so many unusual social and cultural scenarios. And um, it is extraordinary to see the different questions the different people that you met are asking of the world and of themselves. And, you know, the different types of belief systems within the world and how, I suppose, we all rationalise different events in our lives in our own particular way. I might um, throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. When I say the word heavenly, what comes into mind? Uh, well, I, I think as an adjective, people think of something kind of warm and glowy and, and nice and, and paradisiacal in, in the kind of theological sense. Um, and that is, in a, in a way, what what most religions picture heaven as, is this place uh, that we can be that's better than where we're at now. So, and, and the, the reason I included Utopia in the subtitle of my book, and have two chapters on that, is that people try to create a heavenly um, version of life here on Earth, just in case there's no heavenly afterlife. And And so all those are lumped in that idea that there is this place, that we can get to somehow, and we're not there now, and maybe in some versions uh, it used to be that way. There's, you know, the Garden of Eden, the, you know, the renaissance of, of the rebirth of this golden age of Greece, and, and the ancient Greeks had a, an idea that there was a golden age before them. There, there, there is this longing for some kind of paradisiacal place we can get to, and the, the fact is we know enough now to know that there is no such place either in the past or the future. There's no utopia, there's no heaven, there's no perfect place. Uh, it's the striving to uh, enhance our lives is what life is all about. But, um, but nevertheless, that's there in our brains, and it, it drives a lot of human civilization, this kind of striving uh, for something out there. Michael, do you think the concept of mortality is incomprehensible for most people? And within all of that, do you think... Um, when anybody goes about contemplating their debt or debt itself, that it changes how you view your life entirely? Uh, yes, it does. The problem is, uh, that, is that you can't conceive of not being alive. I mean, to, if I say imagine being dead, you can't do it because to imagine anything, you, you have to be alive. Um, I mean, the closest we could get would be something like general anesthesia. You know, it's just they inject you and it's, you know, boom, boom, lights out. It's just you're, you're, you're gone and then you wake up. But uh, and there's no sense of lapsed time. People under general anesthesia have no idea how long they've been out because there's no conscious activity of time passing. So death would be something like that. It's it's hard to grasp it. We use words like, you know, you're going no place, or or I, I say in the beginning of the book, you know, when people ask me, where do you think you go, where are you after you're dead, in in same place you were before you were born, to which most people say, what? I, I wasn't anywhere before I was born. Right. You didn't exist before you were born. You won't exist after you're dead. You know, we just have this window of time. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel like that. You know, intuitively, uh, we feel like we're dualistic uh, beings. That is, we have a brain and a mind. You know, it, it, we don't sense our brain operating, so it feels like there's thoughts floating around up there. And in the same way, we feel like we have a soul, something that is not material, that continues on somehow. And that is the basis for... Uh, these afterlife beliefs, 
uh, just, you know, I can't imagine being dead, so there has to be some place. Now let's imagine what that place is like. I imagine writing a book like this that has, has, you know, when you're contemplating death and, you know, and all the kind of ideas around it and the places that we go to or whatever, that it reminds you of what's important in the life that you're living now. Mm-hmm. It puts things into perspective, I think, in a positive way. Uh, I mean, my, you know, I'm an atheist and my book is a science book. Uh, and I don't think there's an afterlife, although I can't uh, prove it. No one can prove whether there is or, or is not an afterlife. Uh, but to me, if, if anything, thinking that there may not be an afterlife um, that puts a punctuation mark on this life. And in any case, as I say at the end of the book, whether there's an afterlife or not, it, it doesn't matter because we don't live in the afterlife. We live in this life. Whether there's a hereafter doesn't matter because we live here now. And uh, so I, I, I think in that sense contemplating the idea of death, the afterlife, and immortality, and so on, can help focus your attention on what really matters, which is here, now, this life, the people you love and that you interact with, and your society, and being engaged with your community, and, and you know, doing things every day that not just improve yourself, but improve the lives of those around you and, and your community as a whole. Those are the sorts of things that matter. Uh, more than than the you know the day to day mundane stuff and you know we know uh, I cite a lot of research in the book about you know what it takes to, le- to lead a happy fulfilling meaningful purposeful life and it's not just having fun <laughs> you know much of it uh, people report the deepest most important things they ever do in their lives are not fun they're not pleasurable they're not pleasure seeking activities they're they're things that have to do with long term goals and striving and struggling and conflict and and things to overcome. So, you know, when people describe heaven as this heavenly perfect place where, you know, there's nothing to do, to me that sounds boring. You know, I want challenges in heaven, whatever it is. I, you know, I want something to do. That's what that's what our nature is. You mentioned um, a very impactful teacher that you had at university. I think his name was Professor Richard Hardison. And um, he, he clearly, from reading the book, presented some unbelievable uh, lectures to you. But he, he, he asked you at one stage and, and, and all the students, are there tennis courts and, and golf <laughs> courses? And I screamed out laughing. But you do present this um, Gallup poll, which is um, a particularly um, illuminating one, which found that between 72% and 83% of Americans believe in heaven and a third of agnostics and atheists proclaim belief in the afterlife. I thought that was astounding because I can't figure out how atheists can square that one up. Yes, I know. I was astounded by that too because I'm an atheist and I don't believe in heaven. So uh, what is it that these people believe? Okay, now the poll didn't ask, but you know, I, I know this community well enough to, to know I suspect that um, the idea of the continuation of consciousness after the death of the body uh, is, the, uh, is what they're going for there. And, and there are versions of this in different non-Western religions, Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, you know, they, they all have different versions of this, that, um, you know, this is the idea of reincarnation, that y- your body is gone, but, but your soul continues on. Now, what is the soul? Well, really, it's just your pattern of information that represents you. Uh, I mean, even while you're alive, we know, for example, that all, uh, almost all of the cells in your body are recycled about every seven to ten years. Uh, so you're not the same Susan you were a decade ago. You you have all new material, and yet you still feel like you. Uh, you know the the unit that that calls itself uh, Susan and, and and your memories and so on. So it's the pattern of information. So in philosophy, this is called the the problem of identity. Who you who you are. There's a famous thought experiment called Theseus's ship. The ancient Greek Theseus 
was a, a hero for slaying this uh, evil dragon in, in, in his returns in his ship, and they preserved the ship in a museum. But the wood starts to rot, and they replace the wood, and eventually none of the original wood of Theseus' ship uh, is, exists anymore, yet still people rever the ship. Uh, because it's not the wood that matters, it's the idea, the information behind it. And that's the idea of a soul, is that it's your pattern of information. And so this is why the scientists, people that uh, want to achieve immortality, or like Woody Allen, they don't want to live on in their work, they want to live on in their apartment, <laughs> uh, you know, they're trying to figure out a way to keep the, the pattern alive. And, you know, currently the pattern is stored in our, the, the electric meat of our brains, the, you know, wet, warm environment that's, that's, um, that's pretty fragile and doesn't last, you know, but four score years. So there has to be some way to upload that into a computer, into the cloud, somehow keep it going, have it cryonically frozen and brought back a thousand years from now, whatever. There's all these scientific attempts to achieve immortality that I write about in the book. They're fascinating because it, it, it does propel us to think about what it means to be alive, what, what the soul is, who are you really? Um, it, it, because you're not a fixed set of patterns. The patterns change. Your memories change. Your beliefs change. Your thoughts change. So what is the idea of a fixed you? And you know, then, then we're off and running. Uh, these are the deepest you know, questions that humans have ever asked. And uh, so, you know, writing this book, researching and writing this book was, you know, really got me, you know, there were some dark, you know, candlelit uh, nights going, wow, you know, what, what is this all about? You mentioned Christopher Hitchens in the book, and I think you were quite friendly with him, but he was very interrogative of death and of life right up to the end, wasn't he? He was unbelievably courageous. Yes, Hitch, uh, yeah, Hitch was a, a friend and, and I, I knew him for a long time and you know, he's a bigger-than-life character, and when he got cancer, he, he did what he does best, is write about it. I mean, he's an he's a elegant, beautiful writer. A, he wrote a, a number of columns in Vanity Fair, uh, where he was a columnist, about his cancer, you know, the, the topic of cancer, and it was the most famous one, but there were others, uh, Tumor Town, you know, and what it's like to go through chemotherapy, that sort of stuff. These are all gathered in a book. Um, I think it's called Mortality, Christopher Hitchens. And... Um, you know, he famously said, as I quote in the book, that, you know, if there's a heaven, it, it, a, the Christian heaven would be like celestial North Korea. You know, this horrible place you go where there's a dictator that knows everything and thinks everything and controls all your thoughts, that, that doesn't sound like a heavenly place when you think about it. Which is why I, I do explore some of those ideas in Heavens on Earth. I mean, what are we talking about? You know, when I'm, after I die and I go to heaven, let's say I'm a Christian, I, I once was a Christian, so I'm thinking maybe I'm still in there if, if, if it's true. You know, and there I am with Jesus in heaven. So what's up there? Is it my physical body? Um, and some Christian sects say, yeah. And I say, okay, how old am I? Well, you're 30. 30? Yeah, 30, because that was the age that Jesus was crucified. Okay. Yeah, but I'm 63 now. So what happened to the 33 years of memories that I've had? You know, I've lived a long life, and, and you know, I, uh, doesn't that go with it? Yeah, that goes with it. Okay, yeah, but the memories I have now are different than the memories I had, say, a decade ago of being a youthful person. You know, the memories themselves change. There's no fixed you. And, okay, no, it's just your soul. Okay, it, it's my... Oh, and then I quote from Julia Sweeney's funny monologue, Letting Go of God, about, you know, like, the, the blind shall see and the, and the deaf shall hear and, and, the, and the crippled shall be made whole again. You know, this idea of you know, a perfect heaven where everything's perfect. But and she says, well, I had, I had uterine cancer, so I had my uterus taken out. Do I have to get my uterus back? Because I don't want it back. <laughs> or she says, you know, what if you had a nose job and you liked it? You know, do I have to get my old nose back in heaven? I mean, what are we talking about here when, 
you're talking about resurrecting the body or, or the soul. And, you know, it's the whole thing is just fraught with problems. And, you know, Hitch was particularly good at, at identifying those. And I kind of pushed that even as far as I could in the book without being insulting and, and degrading of religion. Religion does a lot of good things. But, you know, I just don't think they have thought it through carefully enough on this whole idea of an afterlife and religion. Yeah, I imagine that as you were pitching together some of your research and, you know, you you pitch up what is heaven and where is it. But you have to be, I suppose, um, quite sensitive to, you know, people of different uh, religious backgrounds who feel very strongly in all of these. Um, I know that you, you know, you talk about the geography problem and you write, if reincarnation is real, it means that souls in search of new bodies are migrating primarily in and around the Indian subcontinent. This alone should be a red flag for any discerning observer. And then you argue there is no Indian physics that differs from British physics. Now, I lashed my head off at that. But at the same time, another reader could find that um, particularly insensitive. Well, yeah, I know. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be honest. Uh, you know, I'm not being, I'm not being snarky or, or sarcastic just for the hell of it. I mean, uh, I, I want to explore these ideas as seriously as possible. And religious leaders have had a head start on, on secular thinkers uh, in history. But now I think scientists are having something to say about these big questions, you know, the, the big moral dilemmas of life that I explored in, in the moral arc and now the afterlife and immortality. What does this mean? And really, uh, uh, you know, I only go for, after religion in just one chapter. My, you know, my, my primary targets are the scientific attempts to achieve immortality, and I'm even more critical of them. Yeah. <laughs> You know, cryonics, you know, the idea of freezing people and bringing them back, at, you know, a thousand years from now or whatever, not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, it's impossible at the moment. The way no one frozen to date, a couple hundred that have been frozen, most of them are in uh, Arizona, uh, where it's pretty hot during this summer. Uh, you know, the, 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 the damage to the neurons is too extensive, so your memories are gone. And, uh, you know, this idea of uploading the mind, you know, first of all, we don't have uh, the computing power to store even one uh, connectome, the analog to the genome. That is, the connectome is all your memories, all the synaptic connections in your brain. Uh, we don't have enough computing power in the entire world to store even one brain. So, yeah, but they say, yeah, but, you know, Moore's Law, doubling power of computers every 12 to 18 months, you know, in a, in a few decades, you know, we'll, we'll be able to store people's connectome. Yeah, but it's just a co- at best if this could ever be done. It would just be a copy of you. It's not you. Say, for example, we scanned your brain, your connectome, while you're alive in a sophisticated fMRI brain scanner, and then uh, uploaded your 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 mind into a into the cloud and turned it on. You would not suddenly leap into the cloud or inside the computer. You'd still be standing there inside your own head, going, "Hey, I'm right here. That's not me. <laughs> That's just a copy of me." You know, no more than a twin looks at its sibling and says, well, there I am. No, these are two autonomous persons, no matter how identical they are. You know, so e- even, even the scientific attempts to achieve immortality are just fraught with both practical and philosophical problems. You describe Frank Tipler as a techno-optimist and, you know, you, you say that he believes in humanity's cosmic destiny and, you know, and he talks about Omega Point uh, uh, and all of that. But I suppose if science isn't being creative, adventurous, courageous and ambitious, it has nothing. And in order to push and, 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 and strive for a change, you have to ask the question first of all, and you have to be optimistic and you have to hope that you will eventually get there someday. 
Well, I think so. But uh, instead of aiming for utopia, uh, I think we should aim for protopia. So protopia is a neologism coined by the futurist Kevin Kelly. Uh, Kevin is um, the founder of, of Wired Magazine, and, and uh, he's good friends with um, uh, Stuart Brand, who created the Whole Earth Catalog. And there's a whole group of these kind of techno-optimists in Silicon Valley and I like them because um, even though I'm skeptical of a lot of their sort of far-reaching claims about the future, uh, I, I, do, I do like science and technology. I do, I do think it's our best hope for leading a better life. But, but, but by better life, I mean you know, just making tomorrow slightly better than today and today slightly better than yesterday. Just, just you know, pr- progress incrementally, as Kevin says, is protopia. Aiming for utopia, the problem with aiming for utopia is, first of all, there's no such place. That's what the word means, utopia, no place. Uh, But it leads to really negative things. Like if you have this vision of a perfect life and there's these recalcitrant dissenters who don't agree with you, you know, they're standing in the way of eternal happiness uh, for everybody. But for them standing in our way, we have to eliminate them. And this is really the calculus that leads to uh, genocide. And we have to get rid of these people. Look, they're standing in our way of utopia. Okay, so aiming for utopia is a bad idea. Uh, but I do like the idea of using the best science and technology we have um, to make you know, the world just slightly better tomorrow than it is today. And that really is what we've been doing for centuries. Michael, you uh, present some powerful research and some humbling, I have to say, research on um, final sentiments of um, death row inmates. And um, it was extraordinary reading them and it was made for engrossing and um, it was captivating reading, I have to say. But I did feel a bit kind of funny in another way and um, that, you know, I was I felt I was creeping in on somebody's life uh, uh, to a degree. But you cite that um, just over 82% of death row inmates use positive emotions before they die and 68% of them use the word love. I thought that was beautiful and it probably kind of reverses some of the stereotype that we have of whether people who are in death row for uh, mass murderings and so on, that you wouldn't expect the word love to come out. Totally surprised me. Um, You know, I just, I kind of stumbled into this data set, the uh, Department of Justice of Texas, um, who has executed more prisoners than all other states combined in the last uh, 30 years. Uh, they record all the uh, final statements that the prisoners make, uh, and most of them do, and then transcribe them, and they're on their webpage. You can look up the Department of Justice for Texas, and, and you can find uh, their death row final statements. And, and so I did a whole analysis, content analysis, of every one of them. It was like 